Happy autumn to everyone. Yes, it really is autumn outside. We have leaves falling all over the place, which means at some point I have to rake and get out the leaf blower. And also, we're near the end of another season of youth soccer. Uh, had one season end this past weekend. Have a tournament that wraps up another season this coming weekend, and that'll be it. And we'll have off-season training. The soccer never sleeps for some reason. I'm not happy about it being a year-round sport, but, you know, that's, it's okay. Get out and play some. Get out and train some. That's no big deal. This is Ranting Soccer Dad for November 8th. 2017, and once again, uh, I, your host, Bo Dewar, am chatting with another candidate for U.S. Soccer President, and um, I would like to speak with all of them. I don't know how feasible that's going to be because they keep uh, adding more, so I'm trying to line up a couple more. Uh, this week, it's Michael Winograd, who you probably had not heard of before he declared his candidacy. Uh, but he is someone with a lot of playing experience and coaching experience and experience running a team, experience working in youth soccer. And his day job is as a lawyer who does giant transactions. And he seems to be a bit nicer of a lawyer than uh, what you've read in the NASL lawsuit. And, of course, we had a ruling in that since the last podcast. And... It's tough to disagree with that. I mean, it's. Yeah, I think it's important to make one distinction here. If there are people who want the NASL to go out of business, and I'm certainly not attached to the brand name. I'll put it that way. I don't think the NASL brand name makes a bit of sense uh, for a second division uh, league, and I don't buy the delusions of grandeur that it's going to be a rival to MLS at some point. Uh, I think... It's pretty silly to call a lead North American Soccer League right now. I, yeah, you could do it for the indoor league. That might be kind of fun. Give indoor a little splash. But it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it really never did. And then it, it's got so much baggage now. Uh, if You could have a lot of the same people involved, but drop the brand name, and I think that would make a lot more sense. And honestly, look, the, these clubs should be able to survive. No one wants Indy 11 to go out of business. Nobody wants... Who else is in ASL now? <laughs> Nobody wants clubs to go out of business. Nobody wants players to lose jobs. Um, nobody wants good executives to go out of the game. But this lawsuit, it, it, it never should have gotten to this point. And certainly U.S. soccer bears some of the blame for that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have so many people running. Uh, for this position. And so we're not going to do a full-fledged analysis of the NASL lawsuit anytime soon. Uh, maybe I'll have Steve Bank on at some point, but Steve Bank's been everywhere. And I've, I've reached a point where I'm, I'm just not looking up the latest files in PACER. I've read this, all the documents. Well, not all the documents. There were 1,200 pages in one of them. But I've, I've read enough to figure out what's going on. I have no interest in watching Jeffrey Kessler try to split hairs and redefine legal precedent and so forth. It's That's one of those people... I, Jeffrey Kessler has always been very polite with me, and he is obviously one, one of the most distinguished lawyers in the U.S. I, I just don't feel like soccer is this thing. And the transcripts from Fraser versus MLS really made that clear, that I don't think that he understood the the game he was getting into. And then he was representing the U.S. women for a while when the U.S. women were ramping up the rhetoric in ways that didn't make any sense. It's one thing to be tough. That's fine. It's another thing to be sort of disingenuous. And if, if you've read the transcript of where, you know, Kessler is badgering um, Sunil Gulati in the Fraser versus MLS case about the Premier League and the First Division in England. And, oh, they changed their names. Well, you, oh, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's, you know, you may be one of the most diehard Neil Galati bashers there is, but if you read that transcript, you come out with sympathy for him <laughs> because it's ludicrous. And what I see in this case doesn't make much more sense than that. 
it, it really doesn't. I mean, there's no way you can make a convincing case that the NASL deserves Division II sanctioning for next year. You just can't. They don't have the teams. And no, it doesn't help to drag up a bunch of NPSL teams. Teams have been playing summer league soccer uh, for friends and family, basically, and then push them up into NASL and call it Division II league. That's not going to work. So it's encouraging to see these people coming into the U.S. soccer uh, presidential race. And I'm, I'm hoping that this represents a trend of getting more people involved. I mean, only one of these people can be president. That, that's the way it works. You only have one. I think all of these people need to be involved in U.S. soccer in some capacity. And you can see, I, I, I've seen things like this happen before. I saw someone run for editor of the school paper who we'd never heard of, but then and he didn't win, but we got him involved and he was a big asset to us. That's what I hope happens here. You know, so all these people, you know, uh, Winalda, Kyle Martino, Paul Caligiuri, who surprised me by running. I have no idea what uh, he would bring to the office. But these are all people who need to be involved. And it could just be maybe there's a vice presidential race in two years. Uh, Carlos Cordero is the incumbent. And then there are other positions they can run for on the board other positions within various councils, youth council, adult council, pro council, and just get in through a state association. Some of these people probably should be running a state association, and I think we'd be in good shape if they did that. So quick notes about the Winograd interview. We covered a lot of his playing and coaching, and it's, it, it's introductory. It really is. And some of these people who are fairly new, there's no real record to grill them on. Uh, if I have a chance to speak with uh, Carlos Cordero or Eric Winalda, you know, there may be more back and forth. Uh, there may be more argumentative questions, not not in a bad way. I think that, you know, I think it'll be healthy discussion in all cases. Uh, with Winograd, I really didn't have anything controversial to ask him. Uh, you may have heard there was a case involving his wife in a youth club uh, or an anonymous emailer, I think. And I looked into that. There, there's not much there. It, somebody just went way, way overboard in the youth soccer realm, and they briefly went to court and put a stop to it. And there's certainly nothing disqualifying about it uh, from what we know. And I've looked at the legal records, and there's, there's nothing particularly interesting about it. So we talk a lot about uh, what Winograd brings to the table, and a lot of it is just simply bringing everyone to the table. I know that sounds weird for lawyers, doesn't it? You think of them as these sharks that go after each other in court. He, he can do that, but he's, well, you'll see. He's got a much more, uh, much more of a mediation background, much more of a negotiation background, and wants to be fair, wants to be fair on women's soccer, and we have a good talk about that. And he knows that simply saying equal pay is uh, is too simplistic when you're talking about different salary structures and so forth, uh, but he wants it to be equivalent somehow and certainly equivalent on the things that can be easily compared. So uh, um, hope you'll give this guy a chance. If you're voting, I'm not sure how many voters are listening to this podcast, but um, and I hope this is someone who will be involved with U.S. soccer down the road. So here's is my interview with U.S. soccer presidential candidate Mike Winograd. All right, talking today with Mike Winograd, who is a candidate for U.S. soccer. And the, the funny thing is, uh, just a, earlier this morning, I bumped into a couple of soccer coaches from uh, Northern Virginia uh, in Starbucks, as I tend to do. And uh, one of them said, well, whoever hasn't kicked a ball in anger has no business being U.S. soccer president. Uh, 
kick the ball in anger. So why don't we start there and, and talk about uh, your your playing experience and your coaching experience and everything else on the field. Sure. Uh, you know, so by way of background, and again, uh, Bo, thanks a lot for having me on here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and thanks for everything you do for soccer. Uh, I, I played Division One college soccer at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, my senior year, I was playing a game at Adelphi, and a coach who had coached me in ODP, a guy named Roby Young, who was a uh, famous soccer player in Israel, came up to me after the game and said, hey, look great out there. You know, would, would, would you think about playing professionally in Israel? I said, you know, that sounds great. I wound up heading over there after college, played there for three years, uh, came back. And at the time I came back, the coach who had coached me my senior year at Lafayette, a guy named Jeff Gettler, had taken the job at University of Richmond. It was a big year. They were hosting the men's Final Four in the NCAA. And he asked me if I would go down and coach with them. Uh, I said that would be great. I went down and, uh, you know, learned a lot. I don't know if you know Jeff at all, but he's one of the great coaches in college soccer, I think, and, and a real educator, and, and it was a spectacular experience. Um, we hosted the men's Final Four. It was the largest Final Four in NCAA history, I think, uh, in soccer. I think we had about over – probably over 40,000 people at college soccer event. Um, wow. We set up, it was a great weekend. We set up a game between the college all-stars and I think it was the U.S. Seven, under-17 national team. It was a spectacular weekend. Uh, I left Richmond. I signed a contract with, I went to a training camp and signed a contract with the Rochester Rhinos of the A-League. Uh, the coach said, you know, the season's not starting for a few months. Why don't you go play for the Buffalo Blizzard? I think you could help them out their midseason, and I think you'd be great there. I went there, and the first day of training, I blew out my knee. Ouch. So, uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was painful. Yeah. Decided to go to law school, um, and I took the, L- uh, the LSATs that winter. Couldn't apply to law school until the following fall, and then couldn't actually start law school the fall until the fall after that. I... Uh, a friend of mine, my college roommate and, and you know, one of my best friends was general manager of the New York Fever, which is an A-League team. He said, hey, why don't mm-hmm. you work with me for a little bit? I did some ticket sales and marketing. And shortly after that, the owner decided to move the team to Staten Island. And he asked uh, my friend Tom Neal and I to start up the team on Staten Island. I handled all the soccer stuff, and Tom handled all the stadium and business stuff about um, – I would say halfway through, Tom left for the San Jose Earthquakes, where he became general manager eventually in, in the year that they won the MLS championship. I stayed on for about another six or eight months before law school started. I hired the coach. I identified and signed the first player. I uh, picked a bunch of names, and the, despite the fact that I had one that I wanted, I put it out to the community to involve them and, and put it out to a vote. Uh, we had great press in the Staten Island advance, and, and everybody voted on the name, and it came out to be, I think, the best one anyway, which is the Staten Island Vipers. Mm-hmm. Helped design the logo, created a grassroots program with all the local, uh, you know, with the local soccer clubs. Left for law school. That team in its first year, the Vipers made it to the playoffs, all the way to the quarterfinals. And then I went to University of Pennsylvania Law School in Philadelphia. I graduated with um, a bunch of honors. I went on to practice at. You know what are what are some of the best law firms in the in the world, uh, corporate law firms, and that's what I've been doing for 17 years. For the last 14 years, I've been an adjunct professor at Fordham University Law School. I teach uh, foreign law students, uh, foreign lawyers who are looking for advanced degrees in the U.S. LLMs, and uh, I continue to practice at uh, you know corporate law. And the kind of law that I practice is for you know some of the biggest companies in the world. And some of their highest stakes cases. You know, I've, I've represented Microsoft and Bank of America and Samsung and Federal X, FedEx Supply and you know all you know really big uh, companies in their high stakes litigations. And uh, a lot of that involves strategizing and persuasion and articulation and sort of synthesizing facts on in a real time basis and on a real time basis. And it involves persuading courts at times, and, and, and a lot of times I'm a big believer in, in, in these cases when both sides are being reasonable, you can usually come up with a fair and reasonable settlement, and that's what I've done you know, a, a lot in a lot of these big cases despite lots of money at stake and emotion and, and you know, adverse interests. Um, so, sorry, and, and you know, let, let me just wrap it up. And, and so uh, all the while over the last 17 years, I've stayed involved in soccer. I've coached 
my children, both in, in rec and in their travel soccer. My son is now at an academy, and my daughter is in the developmental program. My son is 13. My daughter is 11. I've been on the board of our local soccer organization since 2009, and I've stayed pretty active, um, both in soccer and within the community, in, in um, you know, in, in helping people resolve issues and, and figure out initiatives and, and create a better path forward. So I did. I did just look up the uh, Staten Island Vipers, who I remember because I was an A-League fan in the uh, in the late nineties, and yep. um, because I was in North Carolina at the time, and so I was watching the Carolina Dynamo. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you're actually you actually are mentioned on their Wikipedia page, and okay. so forth. And and you know that's one of the things, one of the issues now in U.S. soccer. It's not necessarily the most important, but perhaps a good departure point uh, here is that. There is an issue with second division soccer. I mean, the, yep. there's a, a lawsuit going on with the NASL, um, and it has made me go back and think about the uh, the A League. And at the time, it did seem like it was um, it, it was Division Two, but at the same time, it it was in many senses a viable alternative right. to MLS. Now, of course, MLS only had ten teams, so that or twelve after 1998, so that made a difference, but. I remember talking with people who played for the Rhinos, um, Scott yep. Schweitzer and uh, Yariel Mudd, and they said, yeah, we, well, we can make more money here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yes, I guess my question would be, what happened uh, in, in your words? You know, what ha- the, the Vipers only lasted a couple of seasons. That's um, right. Yeah, so what happened to that structure? Why did that not last? So, so you know, and... and and before I get to that, it's, you know, Yari Allnut, I know well, when I, I played, I had a chance to play for the Masters, the U.S. Masters team in the Maccabee Games in 2005, and we won the silver medal. And uh, I was playing sweeper, if you can imagine, people still using that position. And Yari Allnut was our center midfielder, and it was, you know, we had a we had a great time, and, and I, I loved getting to know him. And at the time, you're right, you know, at the time, MLS was just getting started. And what was when, you know, when I was coming out and, and people said, you're going to make more money playing in the A-League and MISL than you will in MLS. And it was not easy to get, uh, you know, and, and, and it was, it was monetarily, it made more sense. The A-League was the first division until 1996 when MLS came in. And then it became the second division. And you ask about what happened. You know, that's a, it's a very difficult, you know, the Rhinos were a very well-run, well-financed organization. I think MLS came in with a tremendous amount of funding, a tremendous amount of media exposure, and a structure in the single entity structure that allowed it to develop at just a quicker pace. Right, and with Rochester, of course, Rochester at one time averaged more than ten thousand fans, and was and there were always rumors if there was an MLS team in trouble that that team was going to move to Rochester and yep. so forth. And that the Rhinos now are nowhere near that attendance level. It, how much of that is, um, I know Rochester itself, unfortunately, was sort of a, a big major company town, and that company was Kodak. So how much the Rhinos decline would you attribute to uh, just its conditions in Rochester, and how much of it was just that uh, MLS is now just taking up all the space there is for soccer in this country? You know, I, 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 it's hard to, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say specifically. You know, MLS has done a tremendous job. It's also, you know, grew during a, a good growth period for the United States. Now, it's weathered some storms along with the U.S. as well. So at some, at some level, success of teams is, is, you know, is, is tied to, to the economy generally. Um, but so, so I, that may certainly have had an impact. And I and I don't know the particulars of Rochester and the business model, you know, going forward after you know after I, you know, wound up leaving, you know, getting injured, and so I don't know the particulars of of what their ambitions were. I know that there was a lot of talk in MLS, and I don't know the reasons um, that that it didn't progress in that direction. But you know, the, the Rhinos were a really well-run organization, and and what I think if you talk about the here and now, what people need to talk about is. How can we, whether whether they make it into MLS or not, how can we help teams like the Rhinos get better, financially more profitable, and stronger? 
and how can we help the lower divisions get stronger so that we start closing the gap that's that's been created between the lower divisions and MLS. And that gap, you see there are some teams, obviously, every year we see top teams competing with MLS teams. There is competitiveness, but we need to close the gap financially and make those lower divisions stronger so that we've got a good, strong, integrated system top to bottom. And you mentioned integration that's in your um, got soccer piece, and it sounds like that's something you're looking at um, in a lot of levels of the yep. game. And actually, I've heard that at the youth soccer level as well. Uh, the coaches I was just talking with in Starbucks this morning were saying, um, what's up with trying to integrate uh, some of these organizations in youth soccer, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. Youth, U.S. Club, right. a- AYSO, the AYSO sort of has its own mission that yep. doesn't trample on anyone else's feet, but yep. it, there's still conflict there, and they're, still, they're certainly not working together. So what do you see, uh, I guess, at the youth level and at other levels for uh, possibilities for integration? Yeah, and this is critical. And, and let me be clear about something. Integration does not mean merging necessarily. It doesn't mean, you know, some of my other, you know, some of the other candidates talk about basically burning it all down. Right? It's just shock and horror and we gotta burn it all down and start from the beginning. That is, that's not, that's not, that approach isn't gonna work and we don't need to follow that approach. And so when I talk about integration, what I mean is, for example, we need to address the fracturing and these issues that you're talking about on a state by state basis. There is no one size fits all solution. There's no way that the best organism, you know, the most effective and efficient organization of, of all the leagues and the, and the, and the landscape in New Jersey is going to be the same as the best organization in Arizona or California or Maine or North Dakota. And so when we when we talk about integrating, the first thing we're going to need to do is sit down with the states, state by state. And one of the proposals that I have and what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to we're going to put in a US soccer state director in each state and in some big states probably more than one. And he or she is going to be housed in a building with one to two soccer fields. It's going to be a, it's going to be a visible U.S. soccer home base for that state. We're going to get visibility. We're going to get clarity. And in addition, on the elite side, in addition to be, cha- you know, to, to be, you know, it's being charged with identifying and training elite players and defining clearly that path to the national team. That state director is going to work with the, with the state associations. And involved in that discussion are going to be all the other leagues with interests, whether it's U.S. club soccer or anybody else. But we're going to have that. We're going to sit at the table, and we're going to discuss what is the best solution for this state. And in some states, people may say, it's working perfectly. Here, we have ASO serving, servicing all the rec. We've got mm-hmm. U.S. youth soccer, the next level up. We've got U.S. club slightly above them, and we've got academy above them, and we think it works perfectly. And that's fine. And in other states, it may say, you know, we think we, we've got too much competition and overlap between leagues. U.S. soccer, U.S. club are overlapping, and, and the consumer is confused. The consumer, the parent, doesn't even know if I want my son, if I may recognize my son. Some may say my, my son may not or my daughter may not become the next national team player, but she loves the sport. She's good. I want her to compete and, and give it her best, but I don't know where to send her because I don't even understand what all these leagues are and what they mean. And we're gonna, we need to sit down, define clearly the structure, talk about options. Do we want to have promotion relegation between, between leagues? Do we want to allow for competing mid-level competitive leagues? And, but, but we need to define that so people know. And if we're gonna do that, do we need to organize that on a regional basis? Because if we're gonna have competing leagues that compete at the same level within the same county, are we going to dilute the players and force players to start traveling an hour and a half when they don't have to because only half of them are, you know, half of them go to one league, half of them go to another? We need to think about what makes sense on a state-by-state basis. And in terms of the integration, once we've got everybody sort of rowing in the same direction, and we're not stomping out competition, this is, this is you know, this is America. If somebody says, I see what's going on, I see that league, but I can do it better, that's what this country is built upon, competition and allowing people to try and do that. But we need to do it within a structure that makes sense, that's clearly defined, and that has minimum standards set forth by U.S. soccer. And whether that is 
minimum standards on technical development, minimum standards on physical development, on health and nutrition, on conduct by parents and coaches on the sidelines. There are certain, and I'm talking about easily digestible, basic minimum standards that U.S. soccer says. If you are developing our youth for the game of soccer in this country, you need to focus on these areas in this way. We're not going to dictate 4-3-3. We understand if you're coaching a 13-year-old team, based on the personnel you have, that may not, may, may not make sense. But there are certain intrinsic qualities that we need you to adhere to. And on the administrative side, we're going to make sure whatever minimum standards we think are necessary and appropriate are applied evenly. We can't have one league with under under a rule that says you, your technical director has to have a minimum license and another league that doesn't. That creates disparity in an uneven playing field. So we're going to apply the rules. We're going to figure out what those rules are. We're going to apply them evenly. And the integration is going to come through everybody rowing in the same direction, a clearly defined structure, whatever that structure may be on a state-by-state basis, and evenly applied rules that, are, that we think are necessary, you know, at, at U.S. Soccer. So you've surely been in touch with uh, people from state organizations. Of course, well, first you need three nomination uh, letters, at least three. Um, and um, what has been the reaction when you've talked with uh, with state, direct, uh, state associations about this? It's been very positive because because you know state associations know when you talk to state associations, they will they will be the first ones to tell you that the landscape in New Jersey is different than the landscape in Arizona. This is a big country. We have got a diverse, we've got diverse demographics, diverse geography, diverse topography. Concentrations are different in various areas of the country. You, they understand that things are going to have, that, that, that there is no one size fits all solution. And I think they're also encouraged by the fact that I've been doing this for 17 years. I've been figuring these kinds of things out at the highest levels for the biggest company in high-stakes cases and figuring out how can I include everyone in the discussion because U.S. soccer should not be in the business of ramming things down people's throats. It's, it's setting aside whether it does or may not have the authority to do that. It's not the right approach. The approach is, you know, you've got legions of committed volunteers at the state level who are giving up time and energy to to create the grassroots of U.S. soccer. They need to be included in the discussion. We need to come up with a solution together that everybody takes ownership of, and, and that's no different at the grassroots level in figuring out soccer and organization state by state. It's no different in some of the ad hoc committees that I've served on in my local town trying to resolve issues between you know, different constituents in, in all the things that happen in towns, building fields and, and you know, people in, in certain neighborhoods and, and people not wanting it in their neighborhood, figuring out resolutions. And it's no different than what I do on a day-to-day basis with, you know, in, as, as a corporate lawyer. And, and that has been a complaint about U.S. soccer, that it, it has been top-down. I've seen it personally with uh, stuff like the birth year mandates, which – seem to be working for the elite level, not so much at the levels uh, where my kids are and where I coach and where my neighbor's kids play. And um, it also seemed like the the curriculum that was handed down um, six or seven years ago, it has pretty much faded from existence because um, people didn't want that much, that many specifics about what they were supposed to be doing blow by blow. So I... Have you had to convince people that, um, I guess, you know, our stereotype of lawyers, and I'm married to one, and uh, <laughs> have been following the NASL lawsuit in uh, excruciating detail. And so the, the impression we get of lawyers is that they're at each other's throats all the time. So are, right. have you had to try to convince people that, no, I'm not, you know, I, I can be the barracuda if I need to be, but that's not how I see this job. I haven't had to convince people of that, and I think in part because when they hear me speaking, that I think they get that sense. You know, I, 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 approach, I approach every lawsuit that I'm on uh, with, the, with, the, you know, with the view that if parties on both sides are reasonable, most cases should settle. And, and, and so 
I certainly can be tenacious when I need to be, and and uh, there are certainly times in the adversary process where where you need to, you know, roll up your sleeves and it's and and compete with the other side. But so much of what I do is high stakes, and and when you're dealing with these massively high stakes with big companies, I mean, I've been in you know the, the, I've, I've been in merger litigations that are 43 billion euros. And, and when you're talking about those kinds of stakes, there's a really big downside if you lose. And so people understand that, you know, we could go for it all and we could get it all, but we may lose it all. And so if we're reasonable, maybe the, the better outcome is to get, you know, let, let's get something we can all live with. And, and that has been, you know, certainly one of the significant paths that I followed in, in many cases. So do you think you could get um I mean it may be too late for this now given the the legal path they're on, but do you think you could get the NASL and uh the parties that they disagree with, you know, get them in a room and try to and try to solve things? I certainly would try. And I and, and you know, I've been in those situations before. I've been in I've been in situations where negotiations have broken down and, you know, parties from three different countries were involved and emotions took over and business interests were in the way and people said we're done we're done this is we're fighting this is over and i've been in situations like that where i've said listen if if you are at the point where all hope is lost then there's no harm in getting in a room let's just get in a room one time face to face and and you know one more time and 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 you know, let's talk. And, you know, there are times when things don't work out, but there are a lot of times when people were had written things off and getting them in a room and being reasonable, getting the trust. You know, one of a lot of this serves as both counseling your own client and being honest with your own client and serving the role of a mediator. And and, and the, the, the key is trust and fairness and getting people to believe that when you say, you know, I think it's what's really fair is if you move a little bit here, that you're actually telling them that because you're being candid, and this is not a game, because a lot of this has to do with trust. And when you when you earn people's trust, and they think you're fair and open-minded, and and intelligent and processing this and correctly, and 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 coming up with solutions that are you know spot on and and reasonable, they start to listen to you, and it and it makes it easier for both sides to take those important first steps. And once they do. You know, the sky's the limit. All right. And now one of the big battlegrounds in soccer is the less, um, the certainly less formal, the less, uh, uh, less regulated discussion forum that we call Twitter. And, <laughs> uh, to my knowledge, you hadn't been on Twitter before. Your official account says that you joined in 2017. Yep. Or joined in October. Uh, have you, what, what's been your take of any reaction that you've seen on Twitter? Is it something that you've sort of managed to put aside? You know, I've, I've, I've followed it, um, to see, you know, it's loosely. It's, it's, uh, it, it's good to get a gauge on what, what people are thinking and, and you have to filter some of it out. But, you know, the, what, what I've put out has been basic and simple and factual and straightforward and I think the reaction has been good. Um, I think, you know the the media reaction, the media the, the reaction from journalists. I spent a lot of time on on the phone with them, and and that's been good. And and I think people appreciate. You know, people understand that a lot needs to get done, and I think people understand that I can I have I have that deep soccer experience. I can talk tactics. I can talk about games and 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 things like that and the technical side because I've done it as a coach and a player and a, and a manager. But I also have the ability when it when when it when the time comes to get in in a room with MLS owners or MLS, I can do that too. And I do that every day for, you know, as as part of my job. I mean, we and my firm represents uh, you know, leagues. We represent uh coaches, you know, at the professional and amateur level. We 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 represent um, you know, the 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 whole gambit uh individuals involved. So so these, you know, owners, these are people that that I deal with on a on a daily basis and people who come to me for counsel when they've got big problems. So I think the reaction has been thus far pretty good 
and and I hope it uh, stays that way. So one of the other features uh, you mentioned as a plank in your platform, or one of your primary initiatives in the Got Soccer interview, was uh, equal treatment for women's soccer. And right. uh, th- this is an issue that that I covered, and there there are some difficulties to it because the the women in this in the current CBA, the the new one, uh, decided that they wanted to keep their salary structure, right. which is unique. And so yep. they, right, they get paid, um, or at least a certain number of them, and we don't know that number because the new CBA is not public, yep. but um, a certain number of them get an annual salary, regardless of whether or not they're even called in. Mm-hmm. And um, so how do you how do you go about equalizing things? How do you go about trying to make sure that, um, at the very least, there's no large gap? Yeah, I mean, th- this is something that, quite frankly, astonishes me that it's that it's come to this, because this is, in my mind, a very easy fix. If men are not playing on substandard fields, then women will be not will not be playing on them either. And frankly, I don't think either should be playing on them. If men are flying first class, women will be flying first class to games. If if men are getting a certain per diem, women will get the same. And I think I've heard that that's probably been sorted out in the, in the most recent CBA. It, and it was certainly designed to be, or certainly, right. certainly intended to be. And, and there will be equality. Now, with respect to pay, parties are free to negotiate however they'd like. And I have absolutely no problem with the women's program coming and saying, we, we don't want that structure. That structure our, doesn't, doesn't serve our interest as well. So we want a different structure. And when you talk about a different structure, you're now talking apples and oranges. So you need equivalence. And it will be simple with pay. If the, if the men and women want the same structure, there will be equality. If the men and women on their own say that we want, one wants a different structure, there will be equivalence. And, that, and, 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 and it's, it's that simple. There is no, I've heard financial, I've heard revenue arguments against, saying, well, if the men make more revenue, then they should get more money. That, to me, at the outset, at, at the outset, undermines and flies in the face of the mission and spirit of U.S. soccer. And it's simply not an argument that's even opposite in my, in my, in my view. On its face, I don't even think the argument is correct. If you look at the current cycle, for example, where the men didn't make the World Cup and the women did, I suspect that the women may make more revenue than the men. They will next year. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look, and, 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 and as a, and as a follow-up, if you look at if you look at the most recent USSF financial statement, the men and women spent uh, the, the the USSF spent about eighty million dollars on its national team programs. The amount of money that you're talking about to create the equality that's necessary is is a single digit fraction of that, a single digit percentage of that. The fact that we're even that that people would even argue over this is mind blowing to me. And again, in this when you look at the mission statement. Yes, the women have done better than the men at the World Cup level. That doesn't mean I've heard people say, "Well, don't the women deserve more because they've done they've been so successful?" Again, I don't care who is and who is not successful at the World Cup level. We want our men and our women to compete and we want them to be successful and we want them both ultimately to win the World Cup. But in terms of equality within the program, it is equal. End of conversation. Again, if there are structures in place that both parties agree to, that incentivize, that have incentives in them, and both parties are happy with that so that they create equivalence, that's fine. And in some cases, teams may make more based on whatever they achieve. But at the end of the day, it is going to be sitting down with both parties and ensuring absolute equality, or in the case where they want different structures, equivalence, and there's just absolutely no justification for it not to be that way. All right. And the last of your primary initiatives, and a good place to wrap up since this is uh, theoretically a youth soccer-based podcast. Yep. <laughs> it gets the bells and other things as needed. But uh, 
and that is uh, taking down cost barriers in yeah. youth soccer and coaching. Uh, yep. So uh, how, what do you intend to do and how do you intend to go about it? So that's, I mean, look, this is critical because you need to be able to get good players in front of good coaches at a young age. And taking down costs in both pay-to-play for kids and coaching education is critical. It is absurd for a parent who wants to play, put his or her child in a competitive program to be told, well, you're going to have to pay you know, $2,800 or $3,000, and by the way, that's not including travel. It is absurd to think that a college uh, graduate who played college soccer for four years is enthusiastic about getting involved in youth coaching while she pursues another career is told, well, that's fine, but you're going to have to learn the game, which is important. I, I, I understood the game quite well. I teach now a lot, but I had to learn under Jeff Gettler how to teach and how to organize to teach. It's crazy to think that you're going to tell that college graduate, well, go to these great programs, and by the way, you're going to have to spend $1,000 plus probably travel in a hotel. That's just not realistic. And so how are we going to take the barriers down? How are we going to get the cost down? There are several ways. Obviously, there's a surplus at U.S. Soccer that we can tap into. Obviously, there are grants that are available for various uh, various projects that we should make sure we are uh, applying for, public grant fund, grants. There are entities like U.S. Soccer Foundation that go into inner cities and build fields. We need to invest more in them, get them more staff, even make sure that the salaries that we are paying at a place like U.S. Soccer Federation are competitive with the market so we're getting the top salespeople, the top developers, to even to, to, to grow that type of uh, <clears throat> that type of organization, we need to go out into the business world. I, my firm is the leading firm in the world for private equity firms. We represent the likes of Bain and TPG and a lot of great private equity firms. Can we convince Wall Street and those types of firms that there's an investment to be had here? Can we work with MLS to grow MLS even more? MLS has done extraordinarily well. Can we? What can U.S. soccer do to help them grow even more? Because a rising tide is going to lift all boats. Let's help out our professional leagues top to bottom. And I think lastly is solidarity payments. Solidarity payments would enable, if you can say, if you get it right, and you identify and train a players, and they go on to be great professionals, you should get a cut of that first salary, of that first contract. And the reason is simple. That would incentivize clubs at the local level to invest up front. If you've got a club willing to invest because it knows that there's a potential upside, it can reach markets and investors that the big companies can't. It can reach local businesses local individuals, and say, look, invest in our club, not only because it's the right thing to do and you may not get your investment right back, but, but it's the right thing to do, but if we get it right like we think we're going to, we can actually see revenue coming back the other way in a real way, in a significant way. And your name would be attached to it and our name would be attached to it and we can recoup that investment. It would open up the door tremendously to reducing costs at that, at that level. And you mentioned coaching education, and that's something that, again, I talk with soccer coaches and say, yeah, just uh, I I just paid my couple thousand dollars to buy cross country and take my eight license and so forth. And uh, you you've been through some coaching education as well. I don't know if you've been through recently, and it has it, it is evolving rather uh, quickly. Um, but with coaching education, you mentioned a training center in every in every state. Is that part of? Uh, is that also intended for coaching education and how to, and to make that a little more acceptable or that, a little more? Yeah, I mean that it is all part of the state by state decisions and 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 what to use that facility for. I would I would envision that facility being used for training for the elite. You know, coming up with a system, 
an expansion of the current U.S. training center system where you are identifying from all the leagues the best players and bringing them in during blackout dates where all the leagues are cooperating and saying, I don't care what league this kid is in. If he or she is one of the best players, we're going to bring the best players in for training sessions eight, ten times a year and and, and be able to develop them in, in our system during that time and identify and develop that way. And also coaching education, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of U.S. soccer's goal is to figure out the landscape of coaching. And that is an involvement, you know, with, you know, uh, you know, United coaches and, and, and it's with, you know, the USSF programs and it is figuring out, it is figuring out the best way to go about that in an integrated way. And again, that doesn't mean that different people can't see, you know, different organizations can't serve different purposes. It doesn't mean that different organizations, uh, won't, can't necessarily compete against each other, but we need to be on the same, we, we, we need to be rowing in the same direction on the same page to make it work. All right. So is there any question I have not asked you about your platform or any part of your platform that you haven't had a chance to snap upon yet? I don't think so. You know, I think, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is an important, this is an important election. And I think there are, you know, people are, are, I think that the points that I'm making are resonating. And I don't know that there is anyone else in the field that has that soccer experience and the business experience and the negotiating experience and the ability to bring people together to actually execute on all these ideas. We know that things need to get done, but we need creativity in coming up with solutions and we need people, you know, somebody who's actually going to be able to get this done uh, and, and get all parties on the same page. And, uh, you know, I look forward to doing that. So is it your ability then to kind of get those deals done, which would distinguish you. And this has not been a campaign where people were slinging mud at each other, at least not not yet. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there's certainly uh, some overlap between what you're proposing and what Eric Winalda will propose or what Carlos Cordero will propose. But is it simply the experience, um, you know, first of all, the experience of having been there playing and coaching, but also the experience of making the deals? You know, let, let me let me let me say it this way. No, two things to keep in mind. Some of the you know there, there's a there's a fundamental difference in approach between some of the candidates. Some people are shock and horror. We got to burn it all down. I don't. I am not that. I think we've done some things pretty well over the last couple of decades. We just need to catch up in some areas and fix some serious issues. The second point is. When you're talking about the experience and, and, the, and the, able, you know, the ability to bridge both sides, you were talking about Starbucks the other day. and uh, You were talking about Starbucks earlier. And I've helped companies choose CEOs. Companies often come to their lawyers and say, do you have any recommendations? And can you help us or even run the process for selecting our next CEO? It is very rare that you will find a CEO chosen or ultimately successful where that CEO has no subject matter expertise on the product. You're not going to find the CEO of Starbucks very successful if the, if the CEO of he or she has never drunk coffee, doesn't understand coffee. At the same time, you're not going to find CEOs chosen, it's rare, or successful where the CEO understands the product really well but doesn't have the business acumen and doesn't have the leadership skills and the ability to pull people together and articulate a path forward that people are, accept and get on board with uh, at the same time as having that subject matter expertise or product expertise. I, I think I have both at the highest levels, at really, really, you know, extremely high levels. And I think that's going to resonate as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending the, the time with us uh, here. And this is, um, you know, this is an ongoing series. I'm hoping that we'll have. Uh, and we've, you're the second of the presidential candidates to be here. I'm hoping to have to have more. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't expand to ten or fifteen because then I'll be doing these interviews until the end of time. <laughs> and I'm guessing that they won't all. I'm guessing that they won't all be as. Um, 
I guess, as reasonable uh, and and thoughtful as, as you are. Um, and so I appreciate it. It's been a good, good discussion to have. If nothing else, we're getting a good discussion out of out of all yep. this. And so, That's right. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. All right, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Bob. Okay. So what did you think? Good candidate? I think we have a good group of people shaping uh, shaping up for this race. I have no idea how it's going to go at this point. I mean, I yeah, and Winograd faces an uphill battle with name recognition. Um, obviously, he's running against Winalda and you know, Carlos Cordero. Maybe a lot of people haven't heard of him on Twitter, but the people who are voting in U.S. soccer certainly have because they voted him into the vice presidency just a couple of years ago. So he's got a name as well. And... Steve Gans, maybe people hadn't heard of before he announced that he was looking into uh, looking into running, but he announced so long ago and then went on his listening tour that uh, he certainly has a head start uh, on Winograd and on Paul LaPointe. I'd say even on Paul Calajuri because I think Calajuri is, yeah, he's scored one of the most important goals in U.S. soccer history and then just doesn't have a particularly high profile right now, unlike uh, Winalda or Kyle Martino. But again, this is going to be interesting. And hearing everybody talk, I think, is that this is a healthy conversation. I'm excited about this. Are you excited? So next week, we might have another uh, candidate, or we might go in a totally different direction. I like to surprise people. We'll see. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.